Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Bubbling Brown Sugar. How are we doing? I hope you are doing well, listeners. I'm so glad to have you here for this, the latest episode of The Musical Man. I offer my greetings to Patty, our wonderful, esteemed producer in the booth. Of course, right up top, right at the beginning of this episode, we have to tell you our thoughts on what to expect when you're expecting. Yes, we actually did follow up on our promise. We sat down with each other, we had a movie date, and we watched... She's (laughs) She's <laughs> Patty is throwing up air quotes, big raptor claw air quotes around the word watch. <laughs> She's mouthing the word watch. We watched what to expect when you're expecting. Uh, it was big thumbs down. I think that's a fair review from both of us. Big thumbs down. Zero stars. <laughs> We're a little at a loss as to how they thought they could justify an adaptation of the of the guidebook that is what to expect when you're expecting. We were a little astonished by the sheer attempt. So uh, the the movie has gall. I think we can agree that the movie had some straight-up gall to try and turn this into IP. (laughs) Some producer in a a room, ah, that's some sweet, juicy IP. We got to sink our teeth into that. So without going into more detail, uh, there's no reason to go into more detail. We'll just say that it's a terrible film. Maybe don't worry about it. I I don't think you were. I don't think before we even brought it up on this show, I don't think anyone listening was ever going to consider watching, renting, buying, (laughs) checking it out from the library. Uh, Here's something that I can recommend, though. I was absolutely delighted earlier this week with some clips from Late Night with Seth Meyers, in which Seth Meyers interviews John Mulaney about an upcoming episode of the latest season of Documentary Now. Uh, This episode is a parody of the documentary that chronicled the recording of the original cast recording of Company, Stephen Sondheim's Company. Uh, As a parody of that documentary, it is filled with all of these Sondheim-styled songs written by Seth Meyers, John Mulaney, and I believe... I don't believe they're the only credited songwriters. John Mulaney, Seth Meyers interviews John Mulaney, and that in and of itself is a delight. I could spend hours, and I sometimes do, I spend hours watching interview clips of John Mulaney with Seth Meyers, with Stephen Colbert. It's just... What a treasure. I love John Mulaney. Seth Meyers, fantastic. So the two of them together, it's 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 primo entertainment. And then they bring out Richard Kind to sing one of those Sondheim-styled songs from Documentary Now. And it's it's the best thing I saw all week. The clips are on Twitter, or if you don't follow us on Twitter, we're, they're easily available on YouTube. You gotta you gotta track these down. They're, the song is so good, it's so funny, and Richard Kind is just a treasure. Everyone's a treasure. All, all, everyone involved is an absolute treasure, and so I I cannot recommend those clips enough. Again, if you want a really easy way to find them, follow us on Twitter. That's a Musical Man Pod. We're here today to talk about bubbling brown sugar, but. I think I would be remiss if I did not present some sort of enormous disclaimer. And I believe this disclaimer would have been more appropriately presented at the beginning of our Passing Strange episode. Uh, But in any case, it's here. It's here now. It's being delivered uh, to you. And I think it's a very important disclaimer because a lot of these shows are written by people who have perspectives that are not my own, perspectives that I'll never be able to relate to, perspectives, experiences. And when I deconstruct those shows, when I present my opinions on them, I think it's important to have this disclaimer sort of hanging above our heads the entire time. And I I don't mean to turn this into a bit of sweaty virtue signaling. I, I, I genuinely do believe that it should be said. I'm a white man. I'm a cis 
white man, I am gay, that sets me apart in some way, I suppose, from the, <laughs> from the uh, stark, cis, straight white male majority. But at the end of the day, I am a cis white man talking about shows that are written and performed by people of color, artists of color. So take all of my findings, my questions, my statements, my opinions, my, uh, my assumptions with an incredibly large grain of salt. A grain of salt so big, it threatens to crush you under its own weight. It's a big grain of salt, is what I'm saying. I do dare say that 10,000 horses couldn't lick it clean <laughs> if they were given 24 solid hours to get the task done. Uh, I'm, I'm having fun with this disclaimer, but I do mean for it to be taken seriously, and so with that disclaimer, uh, we've, we've, <laughs> we've raised the banner that uh, has that text written on it, and so with that raised, we shall go directly into the show facts. Best part of the show, everyone loves show facts. Facts and figures. Figures and facts. <laughs> That's the official theme for the show facts segment. Uh, Bubbling Brown Sugar is a nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It was nominated in 1976 for the 1976 ceremony. The show opened on March 2nd, 1976. It opened at the Anta Playhouse and ran for 766 performances. Well done. That is a Fucking rock-solid run. Uh, the book is written by Lofton Mitchell based on a concept by Rosetta Lenoire. The music and lyrics are from a variety of sources. So we are pulling from uh, the music of the Harlem Renaissance here, the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And a lot of these songs uh, were written by enormous figures from that time, from that era, including Duke Ellington, U.B. Blake, Count Bassey, Cab Calloway, and Fats Waller. There is also original music written written by Emmy Kemp, Danny Holgate, Lofton Mitchell, and Lillian Lopez. The choral arrangements were by Chapman Roberts, and the musical direction was overseen by Danny Holgate. The director was Robert M. Cooper. More on him in a second. The choreographer was Billy Wilson. The set design was by Clark Dunham. The costume design by Bernard Johnson. And the original Broadway cast included Joseph Adels, Avon Long, Josephine Premis, Vivian Reed, Ethel Beatty, Carolyn Bird, Chip Garnett, Barry Preston, Barbara Rubenstein, and Vernon Washington. Uh, beyond the nomination for Best Musical, there were a few other Tony nods for Bubbling Brown Sugar that year. Vivian Reed received a nomination for Best Actress in a Musical, and Billy Wilson received a nomination for Best Choreography. So, including Best Musical, three nominations total, no wins, unfortunately. So, regarding the director, Robert M. Cooper, and I, I, I wanted to say when I first mentioned his name, set to designer Clark Dunham. I have a few observations about uh, both of them because they are both uh, white men in an otherwise uh, black creative team. So Robert M. Cooper is a white producer and director who has since passed. Uh, he developed other projects for primarily black casts throughout his career. I only point this out because, the again, as I said, the entire uh, writing team, at least, is made up of black artists, so I'm surprised a black director wasn't at the head of this project. Now, in his obituary, it's mentioned how Robert M. Cooper's, uh, quote, creative mission in life was to defy the racism that he had grown up with as a child. So, being generous, I suppose what we're meant to glean from that obituary is that he made it a goal of his to bring black artists to the table, bring more black artists to the table, essentially using his privilege to open doors for those who didn't already share in that privilege, fine, sure. But there were those who lived during the Harlem Renaissance. I should further emphasize that Bubbling Brown Sugar uh, is, a, is a large testament and homage to the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. There were those who lived back during that time who felt that a lot of the new culture that was being produced by young artists and musicians uh, was only meant to appeal to and be digestible for white consumers. So you have to wonder how black audiences in the 70s felt about Harlem being represented and filtered through the lens of Broadway, which tends to appeal to largely white audiences. There's a lot more representation for the black community overall on Broadway when compared to other minority communities 
communities. But this show, Bubbling Brown Sugar, premiered in the 70s. So I'm sure it was generally seen as an outlier, a rare opportunity for black artists to fill those key positions. I'm not saying this or any show has to be staffed a certain way, but I do have to ask the question, you couldn't find a black set designer? I just, at the end of the day, I think, if anything, if Robert M. Cooper wanted to make sure that this got to the Broadway stage, I don't think he needed to be the director. If he wanted to act as the producer and help find the right black director for this story, I think that would have been much more uh, appropriate. And I'm a little baffled that out of the entire team, only he and the set designer are white. I don't know why we didn't go the... It's not even It's not even really a matter of going the extra mile. It's going the few extra inches to give even more opportunities to black artists. And I just don't understand why we kind of... I, I think it's a bit of a dropping the ball, but maybe I'm being too harsh. Uh, I would, of course, as always, encourage the listeners of this show to reach out to me with their observations. Tell me if I'm off base here. Tell me if I'm slightly, uh, very much so out of line. I would, I would more than be will. I would be more than willing to have that conversation and listen. More importantly, than talk. I do a lot of talking on the show. So uh, the, the what's great about turning off the mic is that at that point, once the show's out there, I can just listen. <laughs> I can read your thoughts. Uh, I, it, it's a great opportunity for me. So thank you very much in advance. <laughs> the plot really proved to be a difficult thing for me to nail down. And I say that because Wikipedia's original plot description was very poorly written. It was almost as if it had been pulled from a an old press release and badly transcribed. It was just, the person who did that work could have done a little bit more work. Uh, it was also hopelessly vague. And so I had a very hard time uh, pinning down the details of Bubbling Brown Sugar's uh, plot, its story. I also couldn't find any full productions online. That was an unfortunate situation. Luckily, the Harold Washington branch of the Chicago Public Library system had a copy of the book, the original script, in their reference section, which I was able to read this past week. So here is my plot description, which has since been published to Wikipedia. Uh, it has replaced that uh, much, uh, I would I would say, uh, much. it was inferior, and mine is much better. <laughs> I'm coming from a very snobby writer perspective right now. I'll be starting and stopping this recitation of my plot summary to provide commentary because, of course, that's why we're here. That's what we do here. So, the show opens in the 1970s on the corner of 131st Street and 7th Avenue. The ensemble, comprised of Gene, Marsha, Bill, Tony, Norma, Laura, Skip, Ray, and Helen, a lot of ensemble members right up top, all named, even though they are not characters that continue with us throughout the journey of the show. Uh, this ensemble greets Irene Page, who is out searching for her old partner, John Sage. Irene explains that when they were younger, she pursued a career doing, quote, downtown shows in lieu of helping Sage build up new theater venues in Harlem. This caused them to separate, though they have remained close over the years. Irene has traveled to Paris, London, and Rome, but as she sings, she declares that Harlem will forever be her true home. Sage and Checkers Clark enter with an old trunk they intend to donate to the Schomburg Collection for Black History and Culture. The trunk contains old costumes and props from a time when they performed alongside Irene. A young couple, Jim and Ella, enter, greeting Sage, Checkers, and Irene. Jim complains about Ella dragging him around Harlem to examine the historical sites, including a landmark known as the Tree of Hope. Sage and Irene try to impart a history lesson regarding the Tree of Hope, though their bickering gets in the way. It is revealed that in their younger days, Sage and Checkers would take white people on tours of Harlem, uh, though Irene insists the former never got his facts straight and the latter would always get the group lost. Uh, they recall an old comedian, Burt Williams, and recreate his famous poker game pantomime routine. If you thought that was a bit of a left turn in my plot summary, that's because that's as sharp a turn as we take. We go from talking about Harlem tours right into a recreation of an old comedian's routine. These, these are the kinds of whiplash maneuvers you come to expect in this book. Uh, Sage offers to take Jim and Ella on a tour, quote, through space and time, invoking an old legend of Harlem that asserts you can travel to the past by looking into the setting sun's last ray of light. Sage tells Irene to stay behind... <laughs> 
insisting she'll get caught up in the glamorous lifestyle that undid their love so long ago. There are several moments, I'll just say, where Sage puts Irene in her place, quote-unquote. She wants to be a part of the group. She wants to offer her own perspective and all of the knowledge that she's uh, gathered over the years. And, And John Sage keeps telling her, shush, be quiet, go away, stay in the 70s while we have fun in the 20s. Oh, did I mention, he's not kidding in regards to a journey through space and time. They straight up travel through time. I believe the stage direction invokes a cloud on stage. They are concerned by a cloud on stage, and the ensemble performs, quote, weird movements, and that's supposed to imply that we are moving uh, through the dimensions of space and time. After traveling through time, the group, Sage, Checkers, Jim, and Ella, Irene is not with them, I'll just reiterate, they find themselves at an unnamed speakeasy in the 1920s. Sage is excited to see a white performer named Judy Cantrell, but is put off by the waiter, who initially tries to deny them service before over for charging for their drinks. Judy introduces the group to her white boyfriend, Charles Pendleton III. Charles is a, quote, horn-rimmed, Ivy League-suited young man in his 20s who is eager to, quote, do a little slumming. That is one of his lines of dialogue. When Charles pays for the group's drinks with a large wad of cash, Sage is convinced that he and Judy should join their tour. So make no mistake, he only wants these white people to come with them on the tour because Charles Pendleton III has a lot of money, and that is Sage's A number one priority for the majority of this show, getting that white man's money. On the streets of New York City, Charles learns about strolling and how to dance the Charleston. At 135th and Lancy, the group discusses the Grand Central Station of Harlem, otherwise known as the Pearly Gates, for everyone who came to the neighborhood looking to start a new life. Irene attempts to join them in the past to straighten out some of John Sage's facts regarding the subway station, but she is dismissed a second time. Young versions of Irene, Sage, and Checkers are seen meeting for the first time. The older Irene reappears and she recreates one of her old routines with the older Sage. Their revelry is spoiled when Sage prioritizes his tour for the wealthy Charles, which causes Irene to storm off. So this is her third dismissal, but at least in this case, she's dismissing herself. So I mean, we're seeing a little bit of improvement there. The group tours the club scene, visiting locations like the 101 Ranch, Connie's Inn, Dickie Wells, and Saratoga. Sage and Checkers appear as Rusty and Dusty to perform a comedy routine, not sure why. As the group begins to make their way to the Savoy, Irene is confronted by Dutch, the gangster who convinced her to perform at the Cotton Club when she was a younger woman. Irene changes the past and rejects Dutch's offer, proclaiming that this time she'll stick with Sage instead. You know, the guy that's constantly belittling you and demeaning you. That seems like, yeah, that seems like the decision you should have made to begin with. Yeah, fine. Don't prioritize your career or your needs. Jim and Ella are invited to attend a house rent party at which the latter performs a song to secure their admission and access to food. They run into Bumpy Jackson. This is a historical figure, a real person who existed. He's a numbers man who is seen threatening Dutch the gangster. As prohibition had recently been repealed, Bumpy is concerned that Dutch will begin infringing on his numbers racket. And if you think that goes anywhere, you would be wrong. It does not go anywhere. They dedicate an entire scene to it where none of the characters from the 1970s are present. They do not comment on it. It has no impact whatsoever on the rest of the plot. We move on from there. It's just another vignette. Judy and Charlie, having lost Checkers and the rest of the group, continue to explore Harlem on their own. Charlie is particularly taken with the neighborhood and vows to reject his dull white bread upbringing by buying a brownstone at 138th and 7th. Everyone reconvenes at Small's Paradise for one final celebration, though Ella wishes, she wishes point blank that she and Jim could stay in the past, the 1920s, forever. Sage implores her to instead look toward the future. The end curtain goes down. (laughs) It is the one of the more abrupt endings I've ever encountered in a book for a musical. Close the doors, get the hell out, the show's done. The book, that's the end of my summary, I should say. The book provides next to no context for Harlem and its history, general or artistic 
or otherwise. The figures we encounter, and if you'll recall, I think the only major historical figure we meet is the numbers man, Bumpy Jackson. These people, these lessons, seem completely plucked out of the history books at random. It's really bonkers. At one point, Ellis sings a song to Jim to sort of reaffirm their romantic relationship, and we learn via the older characters that the song came from one of the earliest quote-unquote legitimate shows to star black performers. Uh, That show is not referenced by name, though we are told that back in its time, you couldn't show black people, quote, making love on stage. What are we talking about? Like, you can't just give us 6% of 100% of the historical context. I have no idea what you're talking about. You have to give me that show. For the record, I'm pretty sure the, sh- the song is from Shuffle Along, but I only learned that by doing a little bit of research on every song that's featured throughout the show. If this show is so important, you'd think that you'd want to reference it. It's an important historical point that we're we're pointing towards, but we don't know the name of it? That's just nuts. Nuts to me. Nuts. The waiter is racist. The speakeasy waiter is racist to our core cast of black characters. But beyond that, there are no other references to the struggle of being black in the 1920s. Instead, we get jokes about how modern and old school slangs sort of cancel each other out. They're very clunky and creaky. I believe Jim says to Judy Cantrell, the white performer, oh, your performance was uh, cool, man, cool. And she doesn't understand that. And so the older characters have to say, oh, he means hot. It was hot, hot, hot. And I guess that's a laugh line. I, it, they're barely trying. They're barely trying to write jokes here. It is, it is really nuts how at the end of the show, Ella says, I wish we could stay here in the past. The book is, I, I don't know if you've surmised this already, but it's pretty mediocre slash bad. Uh, why not have just, a, I hate to play show doctor. That's not really the point of this show. We're not trying to like fix and recreate these shows to make them better. But I, why not have actors on stage playing musicians, the musicians who wrote the songs that are being performed on stage. The beginning of the show includes projections of famous musical historical figures from this era. I mean, have people play Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, etc. Make it a musical history lesson, a real musical history lesson that allows us to examine where we were in the 20s and how it uh, informed and still informs where we are in the 70s. The older characters keep saying things like, times were different for us back then, but it's not like we had solved racism by the 1970s, for crying out loud. I'm just, I'm flabber. I'm still, I I can't get over it. The the biggest thing that I can't get over is Bumpy Jackson. Of Of all people, why the fuck am I watching a scene between Bumpy Jackson and a character named Dutch talking about prohibition and the numbers racket. It's not informative. It's not enlightening. It Again, it, it has no bearing on anything. Ay, ay, ay. So that's my official plot description. You can find it on Wikipedia. Hopefully they don't take it down. Oh, I would hope not. The sources that I pulled from for the purposes of this episode included the 1976 original Broadway cast album, couple of observations right up top about that album. It serves as more of a highlights for the score. It is very incomplete. The songs are also completely rearranged uh, for the purposes of the album. Now, there is a two-disc London cast recording that preserves the show's score in its entirety, but it is not available digitally. I couldn't find it on iTunes or Spotify, unfortunately, so we're not going to be hearing uh, clips from that album. Admittedly, there are a There are, I think, two, exactly two clips on YouTube from that London cast album, but I told myself that we were just going to focus on the 76 Broadway version, and if at a certain point I can get my hands on a copy of that other version, that would be great. I would love to hear the show from top to bottom, but we're going to have to stick with what we have uh, readily available to us, especially for the sake of clips. I want you to hear, of course, the clips. That's That's one of the best parts of the show, the clips. Speaking of clips, I watched the Tony's clip. This features Vivian Reed, Avon Long, and Joseph Adels performing Sweet George Brown. It should be noted that this Tony's clip begins on a shot of the incredibly white audience, and the show, the cast, is introduced by George C. Scott. The third nominated musical 
is bubbling brown sugar. And it's a fast-paced and tuneful trip through memory lane of Harlem in the 20s. Vivian Reed plays a young, naive country girl who arrives in the big city and quickly adjusts to the tempo of the times. I, <laughs> George C. Scott, who may be, I, I hate to make an exaggerated statement here, he may be the whitest man to have ever lived. <laughs> The audience also seemingly has no idea when to applaud this cast. They're, they're so out of their element watching black performers that you, you get a clear sense that they are reluctant, that they're maybe a little nervous as to how they're supposed to even react to the presence of black performers on stage. That, I don't think, is an exaggerated statement. I don't think I'm reading into the clip uh, that starkly or harshly. I don't think I'm being unfair. George C. Scott. You couldn't get any black performer from the Broadway community, the theater community, a performer, a director, a writer, God, for God's sake. George C. Scott, I'll never get over it. Bumpy Jackson, I'll never get over it. Uh, I also <laughs> watched a few videos from a 1982 production that have been available on YouTube, I believe, for a while now. The problem regarding these clips, there are a lot of harsh edits throughout these weird montages, and it's clear, it's, it's very clear that the user had the full performance, but for whatever reason, they did not decide to just simply upload the entire performance. We're just getting weird cuts, weird samples, and it's not its not very satisfying. In fact, it's actually quite confusing. I curse you, YouTube user, for not giving me everything that I wanted. I curse you with the fire of a thousand suns, and I advise you in the future to not incur my wrath. Thank you very much. Jonathan, could we please talk about the songs? Why, yes, of course, we of course will be talking about the songs today. When will we When will we be doing that? Right the hell now is when we're doing that. Stompin' at the Savoy slash Take the A Train is the first track on the album. It is instrumental. It feels as if we are meaning for it to serve as an overture, even though it's not labeled as such. But it does very much get us in the mood of the piece, the style of the piece that we're going to be exploring. And so in that regard, I think it, it does a good job of leading us into the show. Sugar is one of the few original pieces that's uh, featured on the album, the original Broadway cast album. The music and lyrics are by Danny Holgate, Emmy Kemp, and Lillian Lopez. I think it's a great way to kick off the show and the album. It doesn't fuck around. It dives right into being incredibly fun and catchy. Uh, one could argue that it cycles back on itself uh, one too many times and reveals a general lack of content beyond the hook. Uh, it relies on the hook to an incredible degree, but the hook is good. It's a fucking manic earworm, and so I don't really mind that. I've been singing it all week, so I don't know why. I, I can't complain about it. I, I was singing some of those Big River songs for quite some time. I was complaining about that. I wanted them to be surgically removed from my head. Bubbling Brown Sugar, not the case. Not the case this time around. There's another track that is a combination. Uh, that is a combination of His Eyes on the Sparrow and Swing Low's Sweet Chariot. Uh, music by uh, Charles H. Gabriel and Sevilla Durfree Martin. Uh, the That was, uh, the, I'm crediting the writers of His Eyes on the Sparrow and then Swing Low's Sweet Chariot is a spiritual written by uh, Wallace Willis that was first transcribed by Alexander Reed. I am pretty sure, even though I had a very hard time, I wasn't able to confirm on the internet who is actually singing on this track, but I'm pretty sure it's Vivian Reed. I, I wish I was able to confirm that, but oddly, even on like the internet Broadway database, I wasn't able to confirm. I want to play one particular clip from this track. It's a moment that came out of left field for me. It knocked me on my ass. Like I said, the album doesn't wait around to impress. A lot of these tracks are actually really 
really, really short. Under three minutes, a lot of them are actually under two minutes. And so the vocal powerhouse beat that comes in the clip you're about to hear, it comes at the midpoint of the song, not the end, where I think modern audiences and listeners would expect it. It's a great clip. Check it out now. When Jesus is my portion and my constant friend is he well well his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches over me. His eye is on the spell. Enjoy the rendition of Sweet Georgia Brown that Bubbling Brown Sugar presents. Uh, that is, again, the song that is performed in the Tony's clip. It's a lot of fun there, and it's a lot of fun just to listen to purely on its own. Vivian Reed is a rock star. I love how deeply she commits to this character. She's playing young Irene Page at this point. This is the moment where we sort of see the three performers meet for the first time when they're in their 20s, I believe. And the joke, you see this in the Tony's clip, but the character of Irene Page initially presents herself as this bow-legged hillbilly, and the two men know that she has been cast in the show that they're putting up, but they've never met her. They've never actually seen her face-to-face, so they're they're incredibly worried that she's not going to be able to dance or perform the song Sweet Georgia Brown with the sexuality that uh, is intended for it, that comes with it, uh, but at one point, Vivian Reed as Irene Page just throws off her cape, and she's wearing in the Tony's clip this bombshell dress and she just goes to town on the number and she knocks these two guys out with her, like, fucking fiery sexuality. Fellas that she can't get off Fellas that she ain't met Georgia named her Georgia claimed her Sweet Georgia Brown Uh, The best lyric is, of course, fellas that she can't get are fellas she ain't met. I really like that lyric, and I'm going to apply it to myself from now on. (laughs) The fellas that I can't get are fellas that I ain't met. Save all my tears I say 
I Got It Bad, uh, music by Duke Ellington, lyrics by Paul Webster, uh, performed by Ethel Beatty on this original Broadway cast album. Uh, it's the ultimate rainy day unhealthy obsession song. I, I know that I don't even have to say it, but it is really well performed by Ethel Beatty here, and so I wanted to make sure that we took some time to hear a little bit of that. Harlem Makes Me Feel is another original tune. This is uh, written by Emmy Kemp, music and lyrics by Emmy Kemp. It is performed by Barry Preston. I never knew I could feel as great as this. Wow, I really got shot full of rhythm. It shouts dance forever. The beats in my heart. Harlem's my kind of heaven. Music is pumping through every vein. Bubbles are bumping around in my brain. It's the first time in life I'm having a ball. I wasn't living at all. Like I said, what was missing was color. Being proper could not have been duller. I've learned how to be free. Now I just gotta be. If I'm lucky, I just may survive. Harlem makes me feel. Harlem makes me feel. Harlem makes me feel it's great to be alive. The song Harlem Makes Me Feel is hilarious, it's ridiculous, but not in the way that it is intended. At one point, so Barry Preston is playing the horn-rimmed Ivy League-suited character of Charles Pendleton III, I believe his name is. He says in the song... Gee golly, if I can survive it, I just may... I'm paraphrasing, but he says, if I can survive Harlem, I know that I'm going to love it here. He's talking about how he just has completely fallen head over heels for this new neighborhood, this this lifestyle, this black culture that he's never experienced before. Oh, he's seeing color for the first time, and oh, it's, it's giving him the whiz-bangs, I do say. I think this is meant to be a genuine progressive proclamation of white love for Harlem, I can only assume that it was either met with laughter or it landed with a complete thud. It certainly lands with a complete thud for me now. I mean, why do we need, my big question regarding this song is, why do we need a character, a white character like Charles Pendleton III, approving of a neighborhood and a culture that existed long before he ever fucking showed up? He's a tourist. He's he's taking photos and trying the food. He's sampling the culture. And this is the guy who's going to gen the neighborhood. He's going to come back. He's going to tear down the brownstone that he declares that he's going to buy in the book of the show. He's going to replace it with a high-end whiskey bar. He's going to destroy everything that was original and unique about the neighborhood to begin with. So I don't, I don't think it holds up at all as, as a progressive song. I get the sense that the white characters, and I, of course I could be completely, I could very easily be completely wrong about this. I feel like the inclusion of the white characters on the tour. It's an idea that I think was cooked up by the white director as a way of bridging a gap that no one would have been worried about but him. A show can celebrate Harlem culture without having to worry about if it appeals to white audiences. I mean, for God's sake, the show ran for nearly 800 performances. I think we should have been able to trust that the show would stand on its own without including these characters. When Jim and Ella are taken back through time, you think that they are going to learn about their ancestry, learn about the history of Harlem, but then these fucking, they, honest to God, these white people show up and completely derail the entire thing. Suddenly, it's not about John Sage and Checkers uh, giving a tour for the sake of educating younger people, the new generation. It suddenly, it's, it honestly does. It becomes a matter of, I'm John Sage, that white guy has a lot of money, I need him to be on the tour now. My priorities have completely shifted, all I want is that white guy's money. It is not good. It is just straight up not good. And the show ends with a version of It Don't Mean a Thing, original uh, music and lyrics by Duke Ellington and Irving Mills. There's something else that makes that tune complete. Seven, seven. 
I really like this arrangement. It feels like a surefire way to end the show on a big triumphant note. Those are my main thoughts on the show. There are a lot of uh, goofier character pieces and comedic pieces throughout the show. Uh, so I didn't cover a lot of the tracks. Of course, there will be a Spotify link online on our Twitter page uh, that will allow you to listen to the cast album in full. Uh, but those were my main takeaways. Uh, so now that we have concluded the song deconstruction portion of the show, we are now, of course, going to hear a word from our wonderful sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away. It's me, Shrek, innit? it? I, I be a filthy, disgusting ogre, I be, don't I? Yes, and you know what disgusting, filthy ogres be like all day and night? Well, they be doing all sorts of nasty things, and you might judge us. Yes, you humans out there might judge a Shrek ogre like me for doing things like, oh, I don't know, flossing with the spines of eels, or wrenching hot piss out of donkey's dick for a midnight thirst quencher. But I'd rather be a Shrek like ogre than a human drinking his five, six, seven, eight coffee all day. Hey, you think you're better than me, do ya? You think you're sitting up there in your castle far, far away? You're sipping on your delicious roasted mountain tasted drink? Well, I'd rather be gargling on donkeys, wrenching, bubbling, brothing, broiling hot piss all day than sipping from a tiny cup in some sort of posh chair made out of feathers. Do you know what my feathers are made of? I should say, oh, fuck me. You're confusing me is what you're doing. The question I meant to ask was, do you know what my chairs are made out of? Well, I'll tell you what my chairs are made out of. They're made out of fucking discarded cast iron waffle makers, and they're also made out of fucking cum. That's right. (laughs) I thought that I would spare you the details, but I freeze my own ogre cum, and I make chairs out of it. It's a hobby, all right? It's a fucking hobby, and I thank you not to judge me for it. I didn't think I'd go this blue in my sponsorship, but that's what you get when you hire Shrek to talk about your fucking coffee. So, if you're a human, I assume that you'll enjoy 5678 coffee. I hear it's delicious, but for me, I'm going to squeeze Donkey's dick like it's a fucking rosh rag at the local YMCA, and I'm going to take pleasure in every acidic drip, drip, drop that drip, drip, drops out of its end. Five, six, seven, eight coffee. You can count on it, I suppose. Final thoughts on bubbling brown sugar. Now I will point out that the show that won the Tony Award for Best Musical in 1976 was A Chorus Line, and the other nominees that year were Chicago and Pacific Overtures. This is a very strong set of competitors overall, though I would be remiss if I didn't point out how Pacific Overtures is another example in theater of white people shepherding non-white stories to the Broadway stage. A Chorus Line and Chicago are canon. I think it's safe to say that they have been immortalized as such. There's no arguing about that. Uh, Long story short, a chorus line I do think deserves to rest in the winner's seat. I don't think it has to worry about being kicked out of that seat. Bubbling Brown Sugar features great music and some great vocal performances on its album, but the book is, as I've stressed, it is hopelessly undercooked. So I don't think we need to reassess its loss at the Tony Awards that year. I don't think we should uh, go 
back in time through space and time and try to change history in that regard. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I have to speak the truth. I have to speak the truth. Uh, in regards to ranking the show, I am going to place it between Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812 and Shrek the Musical. Uh, so it's at number four now. Uh, number one is Passing Strange. Number two is Kiss Me Kate. Number three is Natasha Pierre. Number four is Bubbling Brown Sugar. Number five is Shrek the Musical. Number six is The Goodbye Girl. And number seven is Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. A big note regarding this uh, ranking, uh, which, of course, you can always look at the current show rankings uh, on Twitter. There is a uh, pinned tweet that allows you to go to our Google Sheet, and you can check out that ranking. Uh, it should be pointed out that once we hit Shrek the Musical on that list, we are officially in territory where there are aspects of the show in question that genuinely irritate or exhaust me. See Pinocchio in Shrek, uh, Paula's daughter in The Goodbye Girl, and anyone who was in Jim in Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Everything above Shrek is gravy. So even though Bubbling Brown Sugar has a mediocre book, uh, it doesn't, at the very least, uh, the performances don't make me want to throw myself off a fucking bridge. And, you know, with Shrek, I buy the sentiment in Shrek. I don't buy it in The Goodbye Girl. You see what I'm saying. Look, I'm not going to, as we go further and we add even more shows, I can't be spending all this time justifying my decisions, justifying my rankings. Look, I am not here to stand before you. I am not on trial. That is the ranking, and that's how we're going to go with it from here on out. But, you know, things could change in the future. Shows could get, you know, shifted around. We'll see. There's a lot more to cover. Ha <laughs> ha. Show-related ephemera. Was I able to find anything in connection to the show? Not really. There is a clip from the old sitcom What's Happening in which a group of children sing the song Bubbling Brown Sugar, but I didn't think it would necessarily be all that interesting to just drop that into the middle of the show. It sounds almost exactly like the song on the original cast album, so I, I decided to kind of skirt around that. I did watch... I had several minor panic attacks while watching white kids perform Harlem Makes Me Feel in their respective high school productions in Bubbling Brown Sugar. Uh, did I say minor panic attacks? I, I meant major. It's very... That song doesn't translate. It just doesn't work. I think for the most part, these high school productions are playing the character and his revelations for laughs. We don't need to worry about it. I would, I would argue maybe just get rid of the song entirely. Just get rid of the song entirely. Now, normally at this point in the show, we would hop aboard the musical carousel to determine which show we will be discussing next. But we have a brand new Patreon donor. Uh, his name is Matt, and he donated $5, and so he has invoked his right to stop the musical carousel in its tracks and dictate which show we discussed, uh, which we, which show we discuss next. Ne not discussed, not discussed. He gave me a few options, but asked that I choose the show I was least familiar with, and so I am very happy to announce that next week's episode will be dedicated to none other than Caroline or Change. That's right, our next subject is Caroline or Change. I would like to, of course, give more uh, details regarding the Patreon donation system. You can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash musicalmanpod, and if you feel so inclined, if you are able to give any money regularly to the show, I would be more than grateful. If you give a dollar a month, you get a verbal shout-out every single week, and so I would like to do that now. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you very much, Zach Piercy, and thank you very much, Marisol. If you give $3 a month... Not only do you get those regular verbal shout-outs, but you also get a special one-time musical shout-out in the style of a composer or character of your choice. If you, uh, of course, donate $5 a month, as we already said, you get to determine which show we discuss. I would be so grateful if you were to give that much a month, and I would be more than willing to listen to your whims, uh, grant you your wishes. Think of me as nothing more uh, than your humble servant, the musical man. And if you give $10 a month, you will gain access Access via our Patreon page, again, that's patreon.com slash musicalmanpod, to monthly bonus episodes of a, of a series we're calling The Snub Club. Uh, I am recording the first episode of The Snub Club today. Uh, the subject matter is Amelie. I should say The Snub Club, if you're not familiar with the concept already. Uh, it will be a special monthly
weekly series dedicated to shows that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Uh, the subject matter, again, is going to be Amelie for that first episode, and it's going to drop on the Patreon page Wednesday, February 27th. If you are listening to us through iTunes, please go to the iTunes store, leave a five-star review, and uh, a five-star rating and review, I should say, and you can stream us on Podbean at musicalmanpod.podbean.com or Spotify or Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod. Please like and retweet to help spread the word. You can also email us at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Matt sent me an email and he asked me a question. He wanted me to answer this question on the show. And so again, I am a humble servant and I am granting his wish. Uh, The question, if you, John Pernasek, were to write slash produce a musical, what would the subject be? I want to hear your idea for a new Broadway show. Uh, Matt, my idea, I would write a musical based on the events of the 1934 Champagne Safari, otherwise known as the Badeau Canadian Subarctic Expedition. Uh, Charles Badeau, uh, he led an expedition through Alberta and British Columbia. It was a publicity stunt meant to test half-track trucks, and the group he traveled with included Alberta Cowboys, his wife, his mistress, who was an Italian countess named Bologna, I'm not kidding, Bologna Cicia, Bologna Cicia, and Academy Award-winning director Floyd Crosby, who acted as the expedition's official documentarian. Uh, the group tried and failed to blow up one of the half-track trucks to get some interesting footage. Uh, they gave up halfway through the expedition and through a celebration party anyway. And Boudot, uh, fun fact, ultimately killed himself after being arrested for treason. He was suspected of corroboration with the uh, Nazis. I'm 100% serious about this. I tried adapting the events into a play. I did not do the work of seeing that through. Uh, but it honestly sounds like the kind of material Sondheim would love turning into a show. And so I give the idea to you, Stephen. <laughs> you can have that idea for free. I would like you to call it the Champagne Safari, though. I have to, I, come on, we have to sign on the dotted line. You have to follow through on that for me. Thank you very much, Stephen. Additional answer, I'm pretty sure A League of Their Own, the musical, is already in some sort of development, but that's a movie that screams musical to me. There are so many moments in that film where you fully expect the characters to stop talking and start singing, so I'm very interested to see if we'll ever actually get that. Uh, so thank you, Matt, for that uh, email, and thank you, as always, to Alex Green, who created our beautiful logo and Zach Little for his beautiful music. Ah, Oh, okay. I need to better prepare myself for that. I can't just scream into the microphone like a scared small dog every week. Uh, Doorbell, one day I will no longer be afraid of you. Patty, you always surprise me with it. Oh, you know what that sound means, folks. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for partying. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, Afavidashen, and good night. <laughs>